Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, and my co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alan Ben-Joseph. Today we are joined by a very important man indeed from the Fondation Haute Horlogerie, Pascal Ravassou, a good friend of Alan. So I'm going to kick it over to my co-host to welcome our illustrious guest to the studio and ask the first questions. Alan, take it away. Thank you so much, Rob. Cheerful and perfect as usual. Pascal, good to have you. How are you, my friend? Hey, Alan. Hey, Rob. I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the air. Um, I pride myself in calling your friend for quite some time. You, you, it was great to see you in Geneva during the Watches and Wonders Fair. And I congratulate you in person last time I saw you, but I want to do it officially on air. You are the vice president of the Fondation de la Haute Horlogerie. Although it's VIP, you are actually the co-leader of the foundation. Tell us yes. what the FHH is, please. With pleasure. So, you know, Fondation Autologerie was, uh, was founded in 2005 uh, by three uh, big players in the watch industry, uh, the Richemont Group, Audemars Piguet and Gérard Perregaux, with the aim to, uh, to spread the watchmaking culture in general. And so um, we did so through uh, four pillars uh, until very recently. Uh, one of these pillars uh, is the Watches and Wonders show, uh, show, formerly SIHH, that has become quite big and, uh, well, kind of shadowed a little bit the three other pillars. So today, as of uh, February this year, the FHH uh, remains with uh, these three other pillars. Uh, and uh, Watches and Wonders have formed a separate foundation, as you might know. I do, indeed. And ever since I know you, you've been with the FHH, but you also bear the title of President of the Cultural Council. Is that one of the three pillars? Actually, our three pillars, it's a bit complicated, so I, I, go, it, I go step by step. So the three pillars we have is uh, what we call Watches and Culture, uh, which is, uh, let's say, everything related to watch knowledge uh, for a public that starts from really the beginning of the journey. It's a, it's a neutral resource of information um, where you can find everything you uh, dreamed to ask about watchmaking. Then the second pillar is our academy. We have a, a training academy for uh, almost 10 years now where we uh, train on watch culture. It started mainly by uh, B2B and now uh, adding a, a strong component on direct-to-consumer uh, information and training programs. The third pillar being the forum. We run a, a forum that is a platform for uh, discussion and debate, mainly uh, for uh, the professionals, for more than 10 years now. And the Cultural Council is um, let's say an external body. It's kind of a, it's a kind of a think tank composed of uh, a few dozen experts uh, that are each expert in their field, um, like retailers, historians, uh, editors, everything uh, that is gravitating uh, around our industry. But nobody from the brands or the groups. So this uh, external think tank that I'm have the honor of presiding. Uh, is, uh, is a pro bono uh, participation to the, the watchmaking culture, if you wish. For our dear listeners, I've uh, known Pascal for some time and he's a real, real watch nerd. Um, you, you, <laughs> you go, you go uh, <laughs> way back um, and you go the full spectrum from uh, vintage to ultra modern. Okay. Um, so you really are the embodiment for me for the Fondant show. Walk us through what, what, what do you, you do? What, what, how does your day look like? Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? First, first such, a, such an honor uh, to be uh, your uh, focus point in the, <laughs> in the, in, in, in the watch collecting uh, world. Uh, well, first, I, I've been with the foundation for 15 years now. I think I haven't had two days the same. So it's pretty difficult for me to describe what is a day. Um, 
Well, more generally speaking, I um, I am in charge. We have three pillars. I'm in charge of one of the pillars, the forum, and also from the cultural council, which could be deemed as a fourth pillar, but it's not a pillar per se. It's really a, a think tank uh, kind of operation. And so uh, I'm also in charge of uh, representing uh, the FHH, uh, so all the, the communication uh, aspects. And together with uh, my colleague, Aurélie uh, Strelt, we are really co-heading the, uh, the FHH. So she's in charge of the two other pillars, so Watches and Culture and the Academy. And so we, uh, we form a, a work couple that is quite interesting because we are very complementary. Uh, and we, uh, we have uh, our, our, let's say, our forte is, are in different fields. And it's a very uh, dynamic uh, way of um, of let's say let, uh, managing the uh, the FHH day to day because uh, we have a lot of exchange. It's very uh, dynamic, and um, we try to use our forte when when it's uh, when it makes sense. It it reinforces us because we're challenging each other quite a lot. So it's it's a very uh, uh, it's a very I think a very clever uh, way of of managing things. That's very interesting. So uh, many listeners they usually. Google or type in websites while they're listening to our episodes to walk them through a few. The main website for the FHH is hautologerie.org, which spells H-A-U-T-E-H-O-R-L-O-G-E-R-I-E.org. Um, any other URLs I should point out, Pascal? No, Alan, you're totally right. And um, as we speak, you know that we are finishing a total revamping uh, of uh, our digital platform. And so it has been uh, in works, in the works for the last uh, 12 months. Uh, it's, um, it's going to be uh, looking very new um, as soon as this episode is, uh, is online, I guess. That's amazing. So we kind of have breaking news on this website. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the launch date is end of April. So, um, you'll, you'll find on our website, uh, a lot of resources, uh, as I said, for, uh, for all the public, uh, from the beginners uh, stage up to advanced. And also, um, you'll, you'll find a lot of information about the FHH and, uh, so you can have a better understanding of, uh, everything that is FHH related as well as our partner brands. You know, we have 40, two partner brands, and this is the second breaking news. There are going to be two more joining us very soon um, in the next few days. Uh, maybe I can talk to you about Please do, please do. So we have um, Kermit joining us, basically. Uh, <laughs> Oris is joining the FHH, so very, uh, very happy about that. Amazing, congratulations. Thank you. And the second brand is Gérald Charles. Uh, that you probably know about, uh, Gérald Genta's late brand uh, development. Um, when he uh, when his brand uh, was bought, he continued to uh, to create under this uh, Gérald Child brand. And so, um, the, the the people running the brand now are are trying to uh, to bring his legacy uh, with the still bold design, complicated movements, proprietary movements, and it's, it's a quite interesting small brand to, uh, to follow. They're, they're, they're coming up strong. Those that are listening and that actually work in the watch industry, we have quite some listeners that are professionally active in the watch industry as well, not just collectors. And why can't you have both hats on? If a brand would uh, want to be eligible to become a partner, how do they go about? Well, they can, they can ask us directly. Um, our partners basically they they support us uh, financially uh, for all the projects we have. So our three pillars uh, they are they are co-funded by the partner brands, and so provided that it is not um, I mean you know a brand that is uh, that is either too young or uh, of uh, I would say a, a range that is really entry level, uh, we'll have a review with the cultural council whether uh, the brand uh, is actually following uh, the uh, i would say the val the values of our uh, fine watchmaking manifesto and then uh, provided they are uh, okay with this then we can uh, 
you know, accept the brand in the in the circle of the partners. Are you guys really totally independent? We are, of course, we are totally neutral. And this is the main point. And of course, we come from one side of the business. And our aim is also to uh, open up the, the governance uh, a bit more. To Today, we have uh, a few representatives of our partner brands in our board. Um, so I think unless we have the whole industry following us and, and participating, uh, we'll never be 100% uh, independent, I guess, but uh, we are striving to um, to do everything, and and I really mean it in a in a neutral way, so that we don't favor uh, any brand in particular. And it goes as far as telling our partner brands um, that we are actually not going to uh, promote them uh, actively, uh, because actually the main point for us is to become you know a neutral resource and therefore to be credible we we will not be able to to you know accept specific money or 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 um, arrangement with one brand or the other the idea is really to 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 show a balance of um, of all the brands we have and sometimes when we do articles on um, i don't know on a specific subject let's take a, a tourbillon for example uh, or, uh, or or the history of uh, of of a specific uh, complication will just tell the the history as it is, not based on the uh, partnerships we have with one brand or another. That sounds like it might take quite an awful lot of diplomacy, but I suppose that after fifteen years in the role, you've become <laughs> quite adept <laughs> at uh, walking those necessary lines. But but tell me, how did you become so adept at that? Do you have a background in? politics or have you worked with multiple group brands before like what's what's the story about your career before you joined the fhh well uh no no politics before it came along the way um i have a mba background you know so i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a genuine generalist and uh this also translates into my uh my watch collecting habits and alan knows it um, I, I'm very uh, open uh, and uh, actually curious about everything uh, watches, and I have no uh, boundaries. I would say and no uh, allegiance uh, per se. I started my career in communications uh, in a communication uh, agency, event management. So I worked for many different industries: pharmaceutical, uh, IT, etc., and of course watchmaking. I used to um, organize events for Patek Philippe, for uh, Raymond Veil at the time, and for the SIHH. And so all of a sudden, I find myself in the, in the corporate world uh, through um, Harry Winston. So I started really in watchmaking, uh, running the communication marketing uh, for the watch division uh, at Harry Winston uh, like almost 20 years ago. Uh, and the one hiring me was Max Busser. And I thank him uh, ever and ever for uh, for uh, having had the guts to take an outsider in the watchmaking world. And so I hope he doesn't regret that. And then a few years later, I joined a former client at SIHH um, who hired me and, uh, well, you know, 15 years ago. So um, I guess being uh, in the middle of all these brands all this time, I could uh, learn the virtues of patience and uh, and diplomacy, but you know I'm Swiss, so you know Swiss people are uh, <laughs> are mild and dedicated, and they listen <laughs> and they they don't overreact. That's that's the the theory, of course. And but I'm also half Italian, uh, so oh, uh, believe me, on, believe me on, the, on the road, I'm more an Italian than a Swiss. <laughs> But it, this also fills me with passion and uh, with, uh, with you know, a will to discover and, and, you know, to be really passionate about watches. That's, that, that is all about. Well, I guess that comes in handy as well. I mean, having that fiery side to your personality must be necessary. I mean, you must have to call on it every so often because it's not like you work with a bunch of shrinking violets, is it? I mean, the industry oh. is composed of uh, some strong characters, let's put it that way. Definitely. <laughs> but I think along the way, I always try to see the positive in things, and 
I think it's not a wrong approach, especially um, as myself, I I don't have a, a big ego, to be honest, uh, and I can listen to many things and, and try to, to see things with a kind of a distance with, you know, and I think this helped me having a, this uh, this approach that is not uh, kind of uh, how you say jusqu'au boutiste uh, in French is is really going uh, just for for the sake of going into the argument, but uh, trying to uh, balance out things and and see where is the positive. That I concur. You definitely don't have a uh, big ego. You actually have a great sense of humor for a. Uh, <laughs> Swiss uh, gentleman, but the half <laughs> Italian explains a lot. And if Max is listening, bless you, Max, because you did yourself, us, and the <laughs> whole watch collecting community a big favor for bringing Pascal O in. So not Jackie O, but Pascal O. Um, so so that's amazing. And I, I, actually, I didn't know that story <laughs> of that piece of history. So it's actually sure. cool you shared that. Thank you, Pascal. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the, um, watches culture <laughs> aspect of the foundation. So you guys had a very cool Instagram handle, but where should we direct our dear listeners on Instagram to today? We are uh, going to launch also in a few days, a more corporate account on, uh, on Instagram, uh, called Fondation Autology. Uh, so we've actually the IG you're referring to is the Watches and Culture uh, Instagram account that we launched a year ago as a kind of a test, actually, because we wanted to cater to a younger generation and to uh, make them aware of traditional watchmaking through their kind of channels. I mean, they are their, their, their habitual channel. So this has worked out quite well because we gained more than 15,000 uh, followers uh, kind of organically uh, in, in a few months. And so um, we are continuing this, but it's uh, more an, uh, an experimental uh, kind of thing. And our corporate account uh, is really following uh, here in the next few days. So, Do you know the, the handle already, Pascal? Can we mention it already? Because... No, 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 not yet, not yet. It's really in the making, uh, but you will find it very easily uh, through the through the research of the website and the homepage. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Because I actually like that test account you guys had. You made it. Um, the beauty of it is you guys have a helicopter view of the watch industry, where you go from super uh, Genesis style of history of watchmaking, which you have amazing articles on your website, to very relevant niche um, segments of watch collecting. Uh, you and I went to the exhibition at the Geneva Fairgrounds, which was a, actually a very cool photo exhibition about time and time-telling devices. So that was very cool. Um, using that as a segue, could I be this blunt and bold and state that without the FHH, we don't really would have had the SIHH, so the fair, which now is revamped into Watches and Wonders? Well, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, the SIHH predates the FHH. Um, it was first, um, you know, uh, the, the history of the SIHH uh, first was a kind of a spin-off of Cartier and a couple of other brands from Baselworld. Um, and it was 32 years ago, I guess. Um, yes, 1991. Because uh, at the time, Cartier was not happy about the, the quality uh, of, the, of the, the watch fair back then in, in, in Basel. And so they formed they own, uh, their own uh, fair in Geneva. And it was organized by Cartier. Uh, it was still the Vendôme Luxury Group. So it was really predating Richemont uh, by, by a few years. And so it was, it, it was kind of a homemade small salon, I think the first year, you had three brands, uh, Cartier, Piaget, and Beaumont Mercier, something like that. They were joined later, by the way, by uh, Gérald Genta and uh, Daniel Roth, quite uh, uh, amusingly. And then you even had the uh, Breguet at some point, just before it was bought by, uh, by Swatch Group. Anyway, long story short, um, uh, it was becoming too big for Cartier. And so they, they formed the CIHH, the Comité International de l'Autologerie, 
which was in charge of the SIHH organization for a few years, and then it uh, changed and uh, became uh, the FHH a few years later. Uh, 2005, actually, um, that was really the birth of the FHH. So it has been a, a, a constant evolution, if you wish. But the idea behind the FHH, uh, 2005 was five years into the new millenary. And there was a time where, I mean, autology was really booming. It was the, the, the first years we were, you were referring to autology or hierology, and nobody really understood what it meant because it meant nothing. It was not protected. It was not even defined. And the whole uh, idea uh, behind the foundation was to have uh, an institution that will actually inform on uh, autology, uh, try to define what it is, or at least try to round up the values and the, the criteria and, uh, and inform the final client so that uh, false claims of uh, brands uh, being autology were debunked. And actually, um, I think it has been yeah, since the inception of the, of the FHH, the idea has been to, uh, yes, to, to show <laughs> what, is, what is true and what is not and, and being a point of reference. That was what I wanted to, uh, to say. And that's amazing. And you actually went straight to the heart of the raison d'être, the, 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 the reason of existence for you guys. So you helped form the definition of hotelogy. So what is that today, Pascal? <laughs> you know, with watchmaking, everything is complicated, right? So um, it took us quite some time and uh, a lot of brilliant minds to, to, to try to, to define what is hotelogy because, you know, the, the watchmaker is the only engineer that likes things complicated. Right. Every other engineer I know tries to simplify things, try to make it as straight as possible. And the watchmakers, they take pride in making things complicated. And so it goes with the, uh, with the definition, of, uh, definition of autology because it's actually quite complex. And to uh, summarize it to one sentence, it's basically excellence in watchmaking. It's the subtle combination uh, between the watchmaking arts, so everything that is technical, uh, finishing techniques, uh, decoration, etc., and the applied arts, that is everything, uh, all, the, all the arts and crafts uh, uh, linked to decoration, finishing, but in, in the artistic way, like uh, miniature painting, like, um, uh, like uh, you know, all these uh, marketry, all these metadata that have been applied to autology. Uh, lately, actually, we have a, a like defined thirty, uh, roughly twenty thirty uh, criteria uh, that are an indication uh, of this excellence being present. But of course, um, the the criteria that we have defined in the Fine Watchmaking Manifesto that will be on our website soon uh, is is an indication is. When you have all these criteria present, yeah, you're really in front of a product that is truly exceptional. But where is the line between autology and the rest? Well, we've tried to define that for, for a few years, and we, we even went into an evaluation of brands, but it was so difficult uh, to have a common understanding of where this basis is that we just stopped because it wasn't making any sense. I don't, I don't know, Alan, you probably, like you, Rob, have visited many different manufacturers. And any manufacturer you visit is different to some extent to another because they have an, another approach, another way of making things. Uh, a manufacturer with focus on the uh, precision, uh, the other one on the uh, finishing of a certain piece, uh, the other one on uh, making all the, uh, the, the, the possible um, components. And so the focus is different because every brand is different and every brand DNA is different. And so trying to summarize that into a definition, believe me, well, it's not possible. It's just not. But you guys came the closest I've ever seen. I think that I've seen the preliminary research document of that manifesto that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. And it was encompassing. 
I think it was the most extensive research I've seen. So I highly recommend to our fellow watch nerds listening to find that on hotologerie.org. Um, now to raise another definition that there's actually a lot of uncertainty about and is being used and misused by watch brands in the watch industry, which is the title or term manufacture. When <laughs> dear Pascal is a watch or caliber manufacturer or not, in your personal opinion, and or yeah, what the hell? We're going deep. We're going deep. Putting them on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, Pascal. No, no, no. It's interesting, Alan, because I saw you coming. I know, I know, it would be the the next question. Well, basically, um, we've. Tried the same for manufacturer as we tried for autologie and, and coming with the definition that, that, that would, would have a common agreement on. And it was very difficult because manufacture, I, I mean, the term in itself is actually done by hand, right? Um, doesn't mean much uh, in a dimension uh, of a modern brand today, right? Because, of course, you have some sort of hand finishing, but... Uh, you can argue that uh, some some is is difficult to to define. Uh, at which point do you become a manufacturer when you had to do a lot of finishing by hand or not? It depends also because you don't do that the same for all your products. Because uh, let's say if you have uh, ten different products, well, you don't do these products the same because they're probably not of the same range, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Basically. The, the agreement within the industry uh, to become a manufacturer is to do your own movement. But again, uh, you have many brands that have their own movement but don't put their own movements in all their products. So <laughs> is there a ratio of in-house movement versus uh, uh, movements both outside? Uh, it's also very difficult to say. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not helping you here, but uh, just... Um, to give you a sense, uh, I think, uh, for me at least, uh, a manufacturer is doing at least one of their own movements integrally, in, in, in integrality uh, in-house. It's an interesting wrinkle to sort of add to the conversation because I know we were trying to simplify it and we might actually have made it more complicated because you raise an interesting point that I hadn't ever really considered that the manu uh-huh. aspect of the manufacture does hint some kind of handcraft. Never dawned on me at all, which is embarrassing as someone regards themselves as relatively competent in English. But now I see that we have another issue here because when we look at movement categorization in brands, we tend to think of three definite tiers and you could have bought in or off the shelf movements like uh-huh. an ETA 284 or a Salita 200 series or whatever. Uh-huh or a Soprod, or a Le Juperet, et cetera, et cetera. Then you could have a proprietary caliber, which is exclusive caliber developed and made for one brand and one brand alone by a movement specialist. And then there is an in-house, or as I've always used interchangeably, manufacture caliber, which is made by the brand itself in the majority. We don't expect any brand to make everything, to call it an in-house or manufacture movement. But now I'm faced with the prospect that a proprietary caliber could really be a manufacturer caliber, and an in-house caliber may not have any hand finishing at all, really. It doesn't necessarily need any of those components, so that might not be manufacturer after all. So I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and, and and believe me, uh, even when you take off-the-shelf um, movements, I mean, some brands personalize them so much that is it really... Uh, what is it, basically? Is it is it a proprietary movement? Is it an in-house caliber? No, probably not, because actually the heart of the caliber was bought. But it goes with so many, so much personalization that that it's really, again, difficult to describe. I mean, I just remember here, top of my mind, uh, a very simple uh, thing: uh, IWC using uh, seventy-seven fifty from Valjou uh, as a basis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for yeah. a very complicated watch, um, and I think it was. Was it a minute repeater or something? And I mean, it, it was absolutely making no sense to use a, 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 such a caliber in such a piece. But they did it so, and they, they modified it so heavily that, I mean, 
half of, of the people could not even recognize uh, the, the base caliber uh, that they used. So, you know, again, uh, I think what is interesting, though, is to see uh, the, the, the end result. Because we've had this discussion with the cultural consist so many times. And, and with brands and with, uh, with journalists, uh, the same. Is it more important to have uh, a caliber done in-house or all our calibers, your calibers done in-house versus having um, a, a highly specialist, specialized motorist doing them for you? I mean, what, what's the best in the uh, end consumer interest? Well, you know, this is also a balance because... Uh, there, there are clients that that prefer that the calibers is done in house because you know it's the it's 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 very um, important for them that the brand is is producing the movement. But uh, someone that is motorist and is doing only that, uh, it's probably uh, to be argued that uh, they they do things probably on a on a better standard than than people who do. The movements and do some uh, other parts and uh, and are are doing the whole manufacturing process in an industrial way. So I guess again, uh, difficult to be uh, to be definitive in incentives. Well, it's interesting. Now you've started us down this path of shades of grey. When we were looking for black and white, we <laughs> might as well explore it further because it is really interesting. Because you raise a very good point there. Like, what is in the interest of the end consumer, or maybe we should say collector in this case, or perhaps both, because they might want something different. Recently, I was talking to a big focus group of watch buyers, guys that buy all kinds of watches from all different price points. And I said, what do you prefer? What are you looking for in a caliber? Because I personally, as a watchmaker and a watch collector, always like novelty and interest and distinction and character in my calibers i want to turn my watches over and see something through that case back that i can't see through a hundred other case backs and that could even just be something as simple as a heavily modified base caliber like you mentioned off the shelf but we'll get back to that because what i really enjoy are proprietary calibers or in-house slash manufacturer calibers and i like that because i like that aesthetic and sometimes technical differentiation but a lot of the feedback i got was that consumers are actually quite put off, especially in newer brands. When a new brand steps up to a proprietary movement and goes somewhere like Chronode or Concepto, for example, and has a fancy super duper new aesthetic caliber created especially for them because the buyer thinks, well, what if this brand isn't around in 10 or 15 years time? What's going to happen then? And although the obvious answer or the logical one at least is that, oh, the manufacturer of that caliber, whoever they may be, will still likely be in existence long after the brand should that brand fail and they will be able to service and refinish your caliber where necessary even though it might cost you an arm and a leg and then going back to the original point that you made about nothing to be said against off the shelf or base calibers because they can be heavily modified at what point does that modification overtake the origin of the movement which has then in some ways been treated like an ibush caliber like a, a movement that has been bought almost for its parts and harvested and completely redesigned and aesthetically reimagined. Where is the uh, moment where, <laughs> what, what is it they say? The axe that beheaded Anne Boleyn has had five new handles and 10 new blades, but it's still the axe that beheaded Anne Boleyn uh, or Charles I, whoever it was they used in that example. When's that point? Is it the balance wheel itself? Is it the gear train? Is it the mainspring? What, what do you think? Or is it just just a case of it being down to every individual movement? I mean, as far as I am in my uh, knowledge journey, uh, it's so difficult to be definitive in this because, again, you, you think, I mean, the collector's um, habits and uh, triggers and uh, soft points are very diverse. They are diverse because the, the humanity is diverse and it's very difficult to, to put things into, into cans and to, and to generalize. Um, for some, uh, if the basic um, the basics of the movement, basically the, the layout of the balance wheel, the bridges, and the, the and the gears, that actually you can't change. You can you can you can improve everything else if you wish, but the basic uh, mechanics of the of the movement you can't. Using that it will put them off, and I, I don't really see a tipping point where it becomes acceptable or not because. 
you know, for me, uh, when you have a Unitas uh, 6497 heavily modified, skeletonized, etc., there's a lot of 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 effort and um, and and craftsmanship put into that, especially if then it's finished by hand. So the value is actually done by by the human hand, and this adds a lot of value uh, to to the movement. So does it add credibility? Again, it's it's a personal it's a personal question. Does it add? Um, uh, I would say a, a personal, personalization that is such that actually it's it's kind of a one of a kind movement. Maybe for some it's not acceptable because at the end of the day it's still a unitas, and for some that's the most beautiful things they've they've seen in the world. Here, I think the the, the personal uh, uh, choice is really uh, key, and and it's good because there is there is really something for for all kind of connectors. So that's interesting. So if Personal is the key. I want to ask you, as a personal collector, taking the official hat off, do you care, Pascal, if it's hardcore manufacture or a bit manufacture, or is the handmade aspect important for you, you as a collector, or how do you even collect? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, Alan, because um, I always ask myself, what kind of collector am I since I know actually the industry, not inside out, but uh, yeah, I've seen quite a lot of things like you guys have. So would I actually settle only for the exceptional? Well, my my budget first, <laughs> my personal taste says no. Uh, actually, I I discovered along the way that my my collecting uh, style is more around pieces that makes me tick at the at first sight, meaning being attractive to the eye and and make me making me smile right and these are usually more uh sports slash sports chic watches um and this would really definitely be my 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 collection core when i start to add complications to them and especially uh handmade first it goes much up the ladder in terms of budget and then it's a it's a choice would i rather have one very special watch uh, rather than three, four that I like very well. Uh, then again, the question is more uh, having the choice of more simple watches. And and for me, uh, I appreciate certainly uh, the the hand aspect and the hand finishing and the, and these metadata, etc. And I really find it amazing. And the reservoir of of capabilities and, and artistry that we have in watchmaking is immense, is, is second to none, but it's not my personal taste in terms of collecting. Talking of your personal taste in collecting and the brands that you have been keeping an eye on over the past 15 years of being very up close and personal with the industry, are there any newer up-and-coming independents or maybe even group brands if there is such a thing that you would love to see join the effort FHH in an official capacity in the near future? <laughs> I will give you a very uh, uh, political answer, but um, I mean, really, FHH is open to everyone. Uh, we welcome everyone, and we would certainly hope all the major players uh, in watchmaking will join us because really this project is about, you know, maintaining the interest for, for centuries-old industry that um, that is actually very disconnected in a very connected world. And for me, uh, it is more important to have a common effort towards bringing the new generation on board and trying to make them understand the, the beauty and the magic of these beautiful typefaces in general uh, than really focusing on one or the other brand. Okay, okay. Well, let me rephrase that question to try and sidestep the incredible political spin you put on that one. Kudos, by the way. I'm impressed. 15 years well spent. Um, who do you identify from either a personal or professional perspective, whichever hat allows you to answer this question, as the major players in the next generation of haute horlogerie? There are many um, interesting independent brands that I've witnessed for a few years. It's not going to, to be a big surprise for you, but uh, when I see the uh, the 
creativity and the style that uh, that Pitch Moser is developing um, in a in their own way, it's it's quite impressive. Uh, they really do a good job. They are already partners, by the way. Uh, we, uh, of course, have witnessed the the, the, the impressive rise of, of François Paul Jourde, and I think uh, he really has made a case on its own. And so now the uh, uh, the, the huge uh, hype we see on the pieces uh, is probably uh, well earned because it has been very consistent. I mean, F.P. Jourde was one of the first independent watchmaker to, to set foot and try to establish himself uh, in, in a world that was dominated by the majors. And he actually, uh, you know, set his pace, uh, established his style, and is still limiting his, uh, his quantities uh, under a thousand pieces, which is, which is remarkable. And now uh, I think it's been widely recognized. Definitely uh, would love to... Um, to have François Peljourne on board and in our partners, um, although I know uh, it's not always uh, easy to uh, to work with. What would I say? I've I, I was quite interested by the work of um, of Ressence. Uh, Ressence has um, a point of view that is quite different. Uh, Benoit uh, maintains being an industrial designer he has approached watchmaking in a different way that. The majority of, of watchmakers do, and it has given an edge uh, to Russell's uh, identity that is quite unique, in my view. That's a very interesting choice. And funnily enough, I was uh, while I was listening to you, I was just sort of idly scanning my desk, and my eyes fell upon the Russell's press kit from Watches and Wonders because Alan and I met with Benoit again, and we love him. We think what he does is really, really interesting from a aesthetic and from a technical perspective, and. We spoke to him about pursuing some kind of collaboration or okay. shared projects for the real-time show because our visions are aligned of what would be nice to bring to watchmaking. And I think that he has the right kind of thousand-foot perspective, shall we say, as you, as you alluded to because of his background as an industrial designer. And it's interesting that that's where he comes from because so many younger watch brands are founded by men and women with this career path. And it does bring a fresh pair of eyes to the industry, which I think was you know, very much needed. Yes, definitely. No, I, definitely. I think um, Benoit has has a different take, and it it really opens up. I think a, a new perspective. Um, uh, of course, I was to add uh, Max and his uh, incredible work uh, uh, with the uh, BNF. Uh, it's not a, it's not the new kid on the block by any means. Is is one of the well established. Uh, Independence, but I think what what he achieved was actually, you know, leading the pack of of all this creativity that you can find today uh, in the, in the younger independents uh, or or let's say newer uh, independent brands. And he has he has the merit of having uh, you know developed something completely new based on collaborations, and it was really before the collaborations were the norm, right? And so this, uh, of course, I'm, I'm ever uh, admire, admirer of, uh, of Max and, and all the, the, the friends and all the, the collaboration he has done in a very special way. And I wanted to add uh, the latest kid on the block, actually, uh, that is um, Trilob. Trilob is, as you know, a, a younger, very young, actually, uh, brand from, uh, from Paris uh, that also has the merit to see things a little bit differently, more poetically, but still with uh, with a, with a uh, horological background. And um, I think the the result is quite different from what we've seen before. And they uh, they are very cool about their approach. So they're not trying to become the next big thing, uh, but they are very um, you know very uh, alert uh, about their development. They, uh, they try to bring something differently in their own way without trying to following step. Um, so I think it's, a, it's an interesting endeavor. That's an interesting curveball to throw at me right at the end there. I was expecting to hear something along the lines of Acrivia or maybe even Crayon yeah. like getting dropped in there. But Trilobe is, is a brand that 
I think cool is maybe the way to define it because I've never been a huge fan of the aesthetic of what they're putting out there. I know Alon is, he's, he's a massive supporter of what they're doing, uh-huh. but I have to say that their quiet approach to marketing has really swayed me towards them in favor, at least, than I would have been if I'd had it shoved down my throat like lesser brands have been tempted to do in the past because they don't quite have the uh, mechanical cojones to back up their statement, I would say. So it's an interesting one to shine a light on, but you make an even more interesting point in a in a almost tangential way when you were talking about Max and his pursuit of collaboration and how at the time when he did it, it seemed like a remarkable step in a new direction. But you did mention that, of course, collaboration used to be the norm. And this relates back to our previous conversation about in-house movement manufacturing the the value that collectors or buyers might place upon it or otherwise and for all of our listeners that don't understand what you meant by collaboration used to be the norm could you just give a brief overview of what the watchmaking industry was like in the old days before perhaps it was rescued from the ashes after the quartz crisis yes sure um i think the one of the virtues of um, the, the watchmaking is to um, to be a lot of different arts and crafts that have to be put together. And I think the assumption is that nobody, even today, nobody will ever be able to have all the uh, capabilities in-house because it wouldn't make sense in terms of economics, but also in terms of skills uh, necessary. So back in the day, you uh, had the old, uh, you know, when the, the watchmaking was developing at the, uh, the turn of the century, uh, even until, yeah, just before the quartz crisis, you have these, uh, these farmer watchmakers, uh, as we always call them, in the, in the, in the mountains that were actually, um, you know, farming, uh, taking care of their, uh, their animals uh, during, during the summer. But it, during the winter, the, the months were cold and they had no job. And they, some of them started to work for some établisseurs. Uh, uh, the établisseurs were the Coultre of their, their time and all these big corporations who actually asked these farmers a specific task. One would be tasked with uh, doing the, the gears. Another one will specialize in balance wheels. Another one in whatever uh, screws or, or whatever capability you could find. And so all these farmers were used by these établisseurs and the farmers brought the result of their work to the établisseur who was actually finishing the watch and selling it in the market. And so uh, this was the, the start of the, the collaborative way of doing things because you needed specialized skills uh, to, um, to really build a watch that was making sense using the best of each skills and therefore having a high-quality product, which was the thing that helped Switzerland establish themselves uh, in the world. Uh, it's it's the, quality, the sheer quality of their, their pieces. And then later down the road, uh, the, the, some brands specialized uh, in uh, doing some parts of the movement. It was not farmers anymore, but, but actually companies. And you had hundreds of different companies uh, formed on their specific skills that were selling their pieces to many different brands, sometimes even movements. Do I have to recall that even in the uh, 70s and and later, uh, big and even iconic pieces uh, from a very established brand were equipped with movements from another big name of the industry. So basically, the Royal Oak uh, equipped with the Jeanne Le Coult movement uh, for quite some time. That's amazing. And, and the longer we listen to you, the more passionate you become. Um, Pascal, as usual, we can talk for hours. I kind of want to wrap up this amazing episode with a final question um, for our listeners that are collectors. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you guys offer trainings, mostly for industry uh, professionals, but you've started opening it up to let's say end consumers right collectors yes so yes. please educate us and them and and direct them where they can um, apply for trainings that you offer yes so 
Uh, what we offer, as, as as I told you, our um, academy uh, on, is up basically on watch culture and everything you need to know about uh, watchmaking. If you're a watch nerd uh, and you already know that much, like you, Alan, and you, Rob, well, you probably won't be uh, uh, much tempted by our trainings. But basically, we start from the what we call the watch essentials, uh, and it goes up the ladder through uh, what we call the watchmaking workshops when you take mechanical movement apart and bringing back together so that it ticks again. Um, those kind of classes uh, are offered either uh, in person or online. The best way is to go to our digital platform, so autoologerie.org, when you will find our academy, and then uh, you will find all the information about our uh, courses there. Do you offer them globally or only in Switzerland? Uh, well, since there there are online classes, uh, this is possible to to register to uh, you know to different uh, possible uh, times. Uh, we haven't yet a very uh, developed schedule, but uh, classes uh, come up regularly. Uh, so depending on your time zone, uh, it should be possible to register somewhere. That is what we like to hear because a lot of our listeners, of course, are spread all over the globe, especially in America. So we might get some people flying over to come and say hello, Pascal. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for entertaining us and uh, humoring us with our meandering route down memory lane in the watch industry and the movements, what they mean to you and to us all, anyone into collecting and following the hobby of loving wristwatches. If you would like to ask Pascal any questions or get involved in a future show, please get in touch with us. You can do so via Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nuds. That's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. You can find Alon on Instagram at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H or you can contact us directly via email at either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. You can also find us on our contact form on our website www.therealtime.show. Please like, subscribe, follow and share the podcast. We'll be back next week with another Q&A session and another interview with one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>